think next week, uh, hello. Hi, I think next week we're going to have to set some popcorn out on the breakfast table for the feature film we like to show before the series. Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Derek, um, and I do some stuff here. Uh, one of the... <laughs> One of the things that, thank you uh, for the weak, the lackluster applause there. Um, one of the things that I do is manage the finances. So I thought they, I guess they thought it would be funny if the guy who manages the finances did this spend less sermon. Um, at the end of the sermon, we're going to pass a plate around. We only accept things 50 and above. Uh, joking. Um, so, uh, oh, right, I should pray before I get started. Sorry. Um, let me do that. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the the glory that you shared with us in sending your son, um, the, the great riches of your mercy that you lavished upon us um, in, in the simple act of um, a baby being born for us who's fully God and fully man. I pray that uh, this Christmas season, as we look forward to the celebrations and the exchanging of gifts, that we would understand first and foremost that Christmas, as good as those things are, is first and foremost about Christ. Uh, I pray that you would use your word to challenge our hearts, to challenge our thinking this season, that we might find some way to conspire against the cultural call of Christmas to redeem its true meaning. In Christ's powerful name we pray. Amen. All right, so um, this morning as we continue to ask ourselves how we as the church might reestablish the Christ-centered purpose for the Christmas season, we're going to talk about money. Um, now, when, when you hear a phrase like Christ-centered or gospel-centered, um, as elementary as it is, it might be helpful to remember um, how our solar system works. What is at the center of our solar system, class? The sun. Great. Like, half of you got that right, and only one of you raised your hand to give the answer. Thank you, Paul. Um, yeah, and so with the sun at our center, that means that everything in the solar system literally spins around it. Beyond that, it's given its energy through that, right? It's given its warmth and cold. And if you're in the sweet spot, it gives life, right? How do you like that? Um, I was toying around with that this morning. So, so when we talk about something being Christ-centered, it means that everything revolves around Christ at the center, and so this morning, we want to talk about how our spending might be more Christ-centered as we go through the Christmas season, buying gifts and food and all kinds of fun things. Ugly Christmas sweaters. Oh, by the way, I thought about, speaking of buying things, I thought about going to Target and buying one of those, like, uh, wrapping paper suits for today because I thought that would be fun. Um, I decided against it, but my man Josh had the same idea, and Josh, you just stand up for just a second, if y'all haven't seen this yet, put the jacket on, put the jacket on, that's, that's what I would have looked like, but Josh clearly wears it better, um, thanks Josh, um, so uh, I've got a bit of a unique perspective when it comes to holiday shopping, and not just because I do the finances at the church, that was a joke, I mean I do that, but what I'm saying has nothing to do with that necessarily. Um, I, I used to work in retail for a number of years. I started off as a sales associate um, selling women's shoes. I was pretty good at it. Um, and, and then I moved on to handbags. I can still name most handbags. Uh, it's a great secret superpower to have. My wife really appreciates it. Um, 
And then I spent some time as a sales manager um, where my job was to increase the sales. And as a junior executive where my job was um, as part of a corporate effort to figure out how our company might make more money. So I've got a bit of an inside perspective. And on top of all that, um, I was once slapped in the face by a lady with a pair of boots. <laughs> and let me clarify what I'm saying. I'm not saying this lady was holding some boots and slapped me. I'm saying she slapped me with the boots <laughs> on Black Friday because we didn't have her size. Um, and no one did. So uh, I've seen some things, is what I'm trying to, to flesh out for you here. Um, and, and what I've seen is this massive industry that's built to convince you that your hard-earned money, however much you might earn, would be best spent on things, and that those things will make you popular, pretty, or protected. Basically, that, that there's something incomplete about you that things will fix. And like clearly, the, the message hits its mark. When we look across the, the wide world of people and shoppers, we see an industry that continues to increase even as markets tank. They're, they're disproportionately high, right? I mean, the, the video talks about spending trillions of dollars, billions and billions of dollars worldwide uh, just on the Christmas season. This year alone, um, Gallup estimates that individual Americans, on average, will spend $885 just trying to get presents for everybody. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. That individual number is lower than it was in 2017, but the overall expected expense for Christmas is higher. You know what that means? It means we're really bad at impulse control. Because a message like, you're incomplete, you need this, the people in your life need this to be better as well, hits its mark. And so we spend our money. Now I realize the title of the sermon is, is Spend Less, but that, that's really only half the title, right? Because the idea of spending less isn't that you would be stingy. The, this sermon is not a call that we would all uh, pick up the mantle of, of poverty, right? And engage in asceticism if you're familiar with church history. This sermon's not calling us to live a life of poverty. Spending less is really about spending less on dumb stuff. This is really a call to spend differently. How much of that $885 do you think is going to be spent on really meaningful gifts? Think about the gifts you've been given for Christmas in the past, right? So it's a snapshot in your head, like the last 10, 15 years. How much do you remember? How many of those gifts can you go back to your room now, to your house, to your apartment, to your dorm, and say, Grandma gave me this, Dad gave me this, my parents got me this, this was something that my friend got me, like most of us probably can. And in fact, if you could find the majority of the gifts you've been given over the last decade, um, I would be impressed um, because you are a very sentimental person and I could learn from you. Now, there's probably two predominant personality types in the room this morning hearing this sermon, and I realize that, that both of those, and you might be sort of a mix of both, but both of those are going to read this sermon, they're going to receive this sermon largely differently. Those two categories, I need a table, um, are givers and Grinches, because it's Christmas. Um, so, so the givers, when you hear this call to spend less or spend differently, you might recoil a little bit. Um, you might use gifts as a display of your affection, right? I mean, because that, that's one of the five love languages, right? Giving. And, and so when you hear me say spend less or spend differently and the idea of giving fewer presents out, that to you is tantamount to saying love people less. On the other hand, 
uh, Grinches. There are those of you in the crowd who hear something on, of, of a sermon title, spend less, and you go, yes. Finally, the biblical grounds to be the frugal man or woman I have always longed to be. That's also not what we're saying. Here's the thing. If we're going to make Advent Christ-centered, if we're going to take this season and we're going to put Christ at the center of it, and we're going to worship God through how we enter into it, then we need to think differently about how we spend and why we spend. I just want us to take a, a hard look at not only what you're buying, but also the why. What I am calling you to do, I'm not, I'm not calling you to live in poverty, I'm calling you actually to give lavishly, to give intentionally, and give in a way that reflects what Christ has done for you in your life. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you plan to spend $885 on Christmas presents, $5,000, or you're sitting here thinking to yourself, how am I going to make 20 bucks stretch this season? We all have to ask ourselves, how can we in our spending bring glory to God? That's what I want you to ask yourself as we spend time in the Word of God together this morning. So I'm going to read our passage. We're in Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves, by the way, this is Jesus speaking, in case you don't have red letters and it jumps out at you. This is, this is literally the words of Jesus. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, this concept applies to our entire lives, right? Like, where, where are you going in your life? Are you trying to lay up earthly treasures? Are you trying to lay up heavenly treasures? Is your heart with heaven? Is your heart with earth? But, but let's scale down to the Christmas season. How should we approach spending this Christmas? What we're given here in this passage is two choices. We can store up earthly treasures or we can store up heavenly treasures. The choice we make matters because it reveals our heart. Verse 20. What? Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Sit on that for a second. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart can't be in two places at once. So where are we going to put it? Well, let's define our choices a little more clearly. Earthly treasures are lots of different things. Um, they're not necessarily bad things either, right? And so um, maybe the, the easiest way to explain earthly treasures is that they're the tangible things that you can possess, right? That's the largest category of earthly treasures. Um, and they're not necessarily bad things. For example, how many of you in this room own a book that you really value? Okay, let me ask the question a different way. How many of you have a Bible? Because those, those hands are not the same. I don't know if you guys are looking around the room. Uh, let me help you out. Um, I, like, I, I certainly do, right? So yes, the Bible. But I also have a lot of other books that I really cherish. I also have um, a house that's full of things that my wife and I uh, have that we need and things that we have just because we want to have them, 
right? I don't, I don't have to have uh, a television, but I have one, right? It's a very old one. It needs to be replaced soon, but that's a conversation for later with my wife behind closed doors. Um, Earthly treasures, though, are, are more than just the tangible, right? So we can touch all the things in my house. You may not want to. Um, I, I have a dog and I have a small baby, so it's kind of gross in there. But um, it's not just the stuff you can touch and feel. It's also the intangible, right? Things like love and trust, admiration, respect, right? Um, likewise, I love the attention that I get from my wife. I love the affection. I love that she respects me. I love that my children, when I come in the door, well, really only one of them, because he's the only one that can talk, will, will come up and like, just shout my name. He's really excited for me there. Meet me in the driveway and then want to share a snack with me. I value that. I treasure that. Jesus doesn't say that we can't own earthly treasures. He says we can't store them up for ourselves. So, so then here's the question that I think we have to answer. What does it mean to store up? How's that different from owning? Well, there's a significant difference. Um, farmers often, always, if they want to be successful, store things up. And it's this idea of um, hoarding might be one way to put it. You want to have as much of these things that you produce as possible for one of two reasons either so that your family can live off them for a long time because not every season will be good and so you need to bank on a good crop or a good herd to get you through the lean times, or you store it up so that you can sell it at the market and provide for your family that way, right? Because maybe your family produces soybeans or berries and you don't want to eat a diet fully of soybeans and berries, so you want to sell them off to be able to buy more things for your family. The idea of storing is that you lay it up you put it away and you store as much of it as you can so that you can rely on it to get you through seasons, through life in general, right? How many of us have ever, like, put stuff in storage, right? Like, we, we might rent a room out or a little, like, shelter at the Gainesville Mini Storage and we shove our stuff in there because we have too much of it. Not quite the same idea, right? I mean, I, yeah, Brent's like, yeah, I've got tons. Well, that's... Brent's, Brent's always collecting. Um, Jesus warns us against storing up earthly treasures because moth and rust destroys and thieves break in and steal. As much as I love my books, I can't tell you how many of them I've loaned out over the years and just simply forgotten who I gave them to. They're gone, right? Like, Caitlin complains about how many I have, but given enough time, time will win out, and I will forget where I've loaned them all out. In fact, Jonathan stayed at my house last week, and he took three, and I have no idea what they were. Um, and he texted me and told me. I don't whatever. Um, I, I love the affection of my wife, but she's not going to be in my life forever, right? She's not always going to like me, even if she does always love me. And so, so what, what am I to do if I have depended on those things, if I've depended on uh, my books, my house, my stuff, my relationships, and the, the, the way they make me feel, or the way I can make others feel? What if I depend on those impermanent things to carry me through life? I'm going to be disappointed. I'm going to be left wanting more. These things are all impermanent, however lasting they might be. And yet, one of our national pastimes each fall is skipping out on Thanksgiving dinner to line up outside of stores for clothing and televisions and on and on and on. 
There's nothing inherently wrong with Black Friday shopping, or, or with any other Christmas shopping for that matter, but the event, this event of Black Friday shopping and like the whole idea that we bring into Christmas, we think first and foremost about presents and trees and decorations and food and family and that kind of stuff. Like the, the meaning of Christmas has been lost long ago. We, we've long since stopped looking at Christmas as a celebration of Christ, and instead our cultural emphasis is now on mindless spending during the holidays. Instead, it's about reckless spending. It's about irresponsible debt. It's about meaningless trinkets. Christmas is known, first and foremost, as the biggest season for spending on gifts for one another rather than the greatest gift humanity ever received. We're inundated with advertising that plays off our fears and insecurities, our hopes and our desires. It's, it's one big invitation to store up earthly treasures for yourself. And again... It's clearly working. I mean, you saw the dollar signs that were the, being thrown out in that, uh, in that video at the beginning of the sermon. It's billions and billions of dollars worldwide. Then we must need something really compelling to pull our attention away from these impermanent things and put them on something better. We need something really, truly powerful to get us to stop thinking about the stuff and the things and instead to think about how we might be more Christ-centered in this. Jesus suggests that we store up heavenly treasures instead. I'm going to give you two closely related examples of heavenly treasures. Uh, number one is salvation, and number two is the kingdom. Salvation is the most important treasure, right? This is the heart of Advent, Advent is about the incarnation, right? The, the taking on of flesh by the Son of God so that we might be saved. Advent is not just about birth. It's about hope and promise for restoration, for salvation before God. This is the plan from the beginning. My, my favorite prophecy of Jesus in the Old Testament is in Genesis 22, where we see God call Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. So this beloved son follows his father up a mountain and carries the elements for the sacrifice. He's carrying the wood, he's carrying the coals, and his father is walking alongside with him with a knife. And he, clearly he understands what's going on here because he goes, hey dad, I see we got all this stuff for the sacrifice, but there's no, there's no animal here. And Abraham's like, oh, God himself will provide the sacrifice, don't worry a statement he made in faith, right? And so, so this faithful son follows his father up to the, stop, the top of the hill. He, um, and you may not know this, but uh, Isaac wasn't a little kid. He wasn't like four or five years old. You, you know this because he's walking up a mountain, lugging all the things they need to build an altar and the, 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 uh, the fire pit, I forget what you call it, to burn the sacrifice, right? They get up to the top of the mountain and he stands there and lets his father tie him up. And at this point, he knows that he's the sacrifice. He's not confused. He's not asking dad where the sacrifice is anymore. And he willingly lays on the altar and waits for his dad to sacrifice him to God. And at the last minute, God calls out, stop. I want the boy to live. And caught in the thicket is a ram, the provision. You know what Abraham calls that place? 
Because there's this habit in the Old Testament when a thing happens, when, when God intervenes, when God shows up, that place is considered worthy of honor. And so the, 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 um, the patriarchs would name these places. Do you know what, God, what Abraham named this place? Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Looking forward to a time when another favored son would walk the path carrying the elements for the sacrifice, knowing that he's going to be sacrificed and willingly allow himself to die. And God tells Abraham and Isaac in verses 16 through 18, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as the sand is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. This promised offspring is Jesus. He's, he's what the Lord has provided for us. He is our substitutionary sacrifice, the one that died in our place, like the ram that died for Isaac. Paul writes in Ephesians 21, uh, 2, 1 through 9, Ephesians 21, come on. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you see how Jesus is linked to the riches of God? Like when you talk about heavenly treasures, here's a big one. Look at verse 7 again. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Jesus was an offering provided out of the depth of God's treasury for us. Think of the most lavish thing anyone has ever, ever gotten you. Like, just think for a second, the best present you've ever gotten, whether it's Christmas, birthday, like, just because, whatever, or, like, the best thing you've ever bought for yourself if you're in that stage of life. Did it die for you? Did it, was it sent for the sole purpose of saving your soul? Did the cost, did it cost the giver its life? Was it that deep of a sacrifice? Was it that lavish of a gift? God cherishes you so deeply that he conspired with the Son and the Holy Spirit to orchestrate the most lavish display of wealth in the universe. And he gives us the gift of salvation through his Son. Verse 6 tells us that God raised us up with Christ out of our dead flesh, and don't miss this, seated us with him in the heavenly places. He didn't just save us, he elevated us and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. 
So then the second treasure of heaven, the kingdom. This comes with Christ. See, with Christ's coming, we've been given an invitation to enter into the kingdom of God. So what does that look like? Um, Matt Chandler explains it using the three days. Dwelling, dominion, and dynasty. Dwelling, dominion, and dynasty. When you look at the whole of Scripture, God's dwelling place is a coveted, feared, and wonderful place. In the Garden of Eden, right, we see God walking alongside Adam and Eve. He's, he's in his creation. God is dwelling with man. It's like the, it, it, it's not like, it is the perfect state for creation. God dwelling with creation. When sin enters the world and creation can't be before God directly any longer, then we see God dwelling in the tabernacle. Then we see him dwelling in the temple. And then we get the Gospels. With Advent, well, let's just, let me just read Matthew one twenty three. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God's dwelling place is once again with his people, even though only for a short time. And he comes for a specific purpose. He comes to buy us out of slavery. He comes to pay the penalty that we deserve in order that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And then again in Revelation, what do we see? What's the, the, the hallmark of Revelation? Revelation 21, we see once again God's throne descending from heaven and coming into creation to dwell again with his people, and this is all made possible because of Christ. So Christ brings the kingdom of God with him and brings us into it. Dominion is the second hallmark of Christ king, of God's kingdom. Dominion is another word for sovereignty or control. And, and what does God do with his dominion? He establishes order by speaking the universe into existence. And he holds it together by the power of the Son. His Son, right? Not, not soul. Son. He brings justice by holding accountable all who commit treason against the crown through the law. He brings mercy by providing atonement in the sacrifices that accompany the law. And then he brings peace on earth and goodwill towards men by sending his Son to be the ultimate sacrifice for sin to bring us life. And then finally, we have dynasty. Dynasty is kind of a, a dying concept in the modern world because uh, we live in a democratic republic, and so we elect new leaders um, every little while, in theory. Um, I say in theory because we tend to re-elect the same people, but that, that's another conversation, not sermon-worthy. Um, you might have heard dynasty, right, if you're, if you're really big into the sports. Um, and we talk about, um, we, you might talk about dynasty with respect to a team that's really, really good year after year after year, like the Patriots, led by the kingmaker, uh, what's his name, uh, Tony Romo? No. Um, <laughs> Brady, Tom Brady, Tom Brady, yeah. I... <laughs> 
nothing brings me more joy in this life than getting a sports reference wrong to see Heath Brandon's face. Uh, you guys should try it sometime. But what dynasty really means is power continuing, control authority continuing through one genetic line. So uh, a, a modern example of that, you might have heard in the news recently when um, George H.W. Bush passed away uh, Friday before last. Um, he was the 41st president of the United States. His family was in politics for the better part of a century. His dad, Prescott Bush, was a senator from Massachusetts who, um, who went after uh, McCarthy in the 50s. Uh, then Bush himself was a congressman. He was a senator. He served as an ambassador. He was head of the CIA. He was president of the United States. And then he had two sons, one of whom was governor of Florida, Jeb, exclamation point, um, and, and George, who went on to be uh, not only governor of Texas, but also president of the United States. That's a modern dynasty, one family carrying out, uh, carrying authority from generation to generation. But what happens when Christ died on the cross and was resurrected three days later? Here's why we're talking about dynasty. Paul explains it this way in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions, adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. Read that and marvel. <clears throat> My all-time favorite Christmas song is O Holy Night. And in the opening stanza of that song is the greatest verse I think that's ever penned in any Christmas song. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. This is what you are worth to God. Not only did he send his son to provide a sacrifice that you had no hope of coming up with yourself. Not only did he bring salvation and spiritually resurrect you from the dead out of the depths of your sin and depravity while you were still doing it, not waiting until you deserved it, but he sat you with Christ in the heavenly places and adopted you as a son. Quick side note, right? Because it's 2018, and I feel like anytime, uh, I feel like it helps us to really understand the context of what's being written whenever gender is at play. The reason Paul says adoption as sons is not because God changes your gender spiritually. It isn't because he doesn't adopt daughters. He is, in his time, giving a worth and value to women that was unique 
in that world. Because when God receives you through adoption, you are counted as equal worth, not just as a son, but as firstborn sons who are the ones who inherit everything. Because, right, what does it say? Um, That we're no longer slaves but a son, and if a son, then an heir? Well, an heir receives something, right? An heir is in line to receive something. What do we receive? Well, let's look at what Christ received. Christ tells us in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Talk about an inheritance. God puts us on that plane. You've been brought into the kingdom. You're part of the dynasty. You have the spirit of God dwelling in you and you've been given the dominion through Christ. So here are our choices. In the earthly treasures category, we have the impermanent that doesn't last forever, that moth and rust destroys, that thieves break in and steal. And in the heavenly category, we have salvation, we have dwelling, dominion, and dynasty, all from God. What is there to compare? (laughs) And yet, I think we'd all agree it's not that simple. I mean, we we all kind of know this, but if we were to look at our habits, um, we might agree also that they don't quite line up with this. So what do we do? Why do we chase after fleeting feelings of gladness when permanent joy is offered to us? Well, because we decide what we treasure by, or sorry, (laughs) let me try this again. How we decide what we treasure is subject to influence. Right? So look at, again, at verses 22 through 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What consumes our attention consumes our whole self. How many of us get cable or satellite? Or uh, you have been on a little thing we like to call the internet, right? Um, It is impossible nowadays to escape advertisements. And advertisements, look, I don't, I don't think that marketing in and of itself is, is a terrible, sinful profession, right? Like, it's not all madmen, glitz and glamour, like that kind of stuff. But, but the most successful advertising pairs emotions with stuff to convince you that the stuff will increase, diminish, or change that emotion in some sense, right? Whatever they think you want, they're going to tie a thing to it, so you buy the thing to improve the emotion. <coughs> what are you counteracting that with? Are you counteracting that with other medias you consume? Books, magazines, videos uh, on YouTube, right? Movies. Is there room in your routine to be rooted and grounded in Scripture so that 
your, your eye is receiving light. Everywhere we turn, there is darkness waiting to fill our hearts and minds. It's in televisions and movies. It's in the books and magazines and papers we read. It's everywhere. And at Christmas, we get this message that this is what you need. And so we put it on our Christmas list or we buy it for others. It's trinkets and it's toys. The impermanent, because they want your money and they want you to keep spending it until you feel fulfilled, but you won't. And I'm afraid that sometimes our holiday shopping might reflect hearts that are far too concerned with the impermanent, far too consumed by consumerism, but we can do it differently. We can reclaim Christmas as Advent and proclaim the immeasurable richness of our Heavenly Father. Advent isn't about Christmas shopping. It's about Christ. How can we show that? Givers, let me talk to you for a second. I have a confession. I am one of you. If it was not for my amazingly talented and wise wife, I would have no money because I would just spend it all the time taking people out to eat or buying them presents just because I saw them, I thought of them, and I wanted to buy them a thing. Caitlin can tell you this because every year I try to demonstrate my love for her by buying her one really expensive present. For example, one year, I made it a point to shop every antique store between here and Ocala to find her an antique vase because she had made a comment early in the year that she liked old glass. It's a random comment to make. She did make it. Now she's lying in church. We'll deal with that later. But So I found one, and it was made of Waterford crystal, right? Like, that's, that's old money. And so I... I spent a lot of money on this, and I wrapped it up, and I gave it to her at Christmas, and her family is there, because I was still working in retail, so I didn't get time off, and she opens it up, and she goes, what is that? <laughs> We've gotten through it, um, <laughs> but, but I always try every year to spend a large amount of money on her so that she will be impressed. It doesn't work. Um, one day, one day. I want to be generous and buy as much as I can. Um, and, and there's nothing wrong with spending money on blessing people if that's what you're trying to do, right? If you're trying to be a blessing to somebody, go for it, right? I am not telling you not to do that. If that's how you're wired, just try something different. Stop trying to defend yourself to Mario and pay attention to the sermon. If that's how you're wired, if you're wired as a giver, I want you to try something a little bit different. But listen, Jesus only got three presents, okay? So if your Christmas list for the persons averages out like four to 10 to 20 gifts, just cut it back, right? Like bring it down, scale it down, buy fewer things, and instead of letting your spending or the number of gifts do the talking, pick one or two really thoughtful gifts for the people on your shopping list. Use that opportunity to talk with folks about why you chose what you chose. And as you share that, share also the gospel. At, at our house, what this means is, um, I'm going to keep trying to impress Caitlin through my giving, but, but with, our, with our children, 
here's what this means. Um, now we're like I'm. I got some gray, but I'm still really young, and our kids are only like four and one, so this is going to evolve. But here's what it looks like now. Trip and William are only going to get a couple of presents to open up. They, they are. They're, they're going to get a couple of nice presents, something that will, um, will advance their, their, um, their knowledge and skills, right, because they're still learning how to human. Um, they're going to get a couple of things that they might enjoy that might bring them some sense of joy because as they open that gift, so for Trip right now, it's going to be something probably Winnie the Pooh related because he's really into the Pooh. Um, phrasing. Um, and, and he's going to get that. And as he's just bonkers over this thing, Kayla and I are going to pull him aside. Hey, do you know why we got you that? Do you know why we looked for something that would make you happy? Because God gave lavishly to us his son. We've already started that conversation with him, right? So, so we're, we're reading through the Gospel of Luke as a family um, in, in the adult Bible, which he's really struggling with. He's doing really well. And, and we're talking as we're reading through this, why does this matter? What is Christmas about? Well, Christmas is about Jesus. That's why we give people presents. We've started that conversation with him. Like, hey, we're going to get presents for Nana and Papa and Nana and Grandpa and Pops and Grandma and Grammy and Papa Mike and all these people. But here's why. We want them to feel loved and thought about because God demonstrated love and thoughts towards us in sending Christ. Trying to communicate that to a three-year-old, four-year-old is kind of hard, but we're trying. Grinches, those of you who think to raise your Ebenezer means to raise a little miniature Ebenezer Scrooge to be frugal like yourself. Look at me for a second. There is nothing wrong with budgeting well. There is nothing wrong with counting your pennies. In fact, it is God-honoring to be good with the resources he gives you because you are a steward of those resources. But here's the thing. Are you being frugal and Grinch-like by holding on because it works both ways, right? God doesn't call you to be a good steward just by storing up for yourself. He calls you to be a good steward by managing your resources well, not spending what you don't need to spend, but also leaving room to be generous. Because God was generous with you. Will your giving reflect that this season? Now, a, a fair question that you might ask, if, if you're in that category, or, or maybe leaning that way slightly, um, let's say, let me, let me say it this way, maybe, maybe you're not a Grinch by choice. Maybe you don't look at your money and say, well, if I, if I give too much, then I won't have enough. Maybe what you're saying is, I don't think I have enough to give. Again, the call is to be generous. I can't define that for you. I can't define what appropriate generosity looks like. The Bible doesn't say, do this with your money and break down the categories. It's not, it doesn't give us that answer. What it gives us is the example of Christ's generosity. But let me share with you this quote from C.S. Lewis that I think might help your thinking, right? So again, the idea is think about it. I'm not giving you an answer. I want you to think more carefully about how Christ might be at the center of your giving. C.S. Lewis wrote, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. 
In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, if you're keeping up with the Joneses, whether the Joneses are ballers or they're just scraping by. That's my ad. He didn't put that in there. Um, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot because our charitable expenditure excludes them. So comb through your budget. Is there an opportunity to spend less on you in order to spend more on others? The message of this sermon is not to take all the money you give uh, that you were going to do, uh, that you were going to spend on presents, right? I don't want you to take all that money and instead give it away to charity. But look, if you feel called to do that, God bless you. That is not what I am telling you that you ought to do. The message of this sermon is spend less. Spend less on the dumb stuff that we get just for the sake of getting something. Spend less on ourselves by, lavish, by selfishly holding on to the resources God has blessed us with and spend differently. Spend intentionally in a way that will advance the kingdom so that through your generosity, you can share the gospel with friends and family. Do you remember the toy drive we, we kicked off at the beginning of the holiday season? Right, we just sent a few hundred toys down to a, a poor village in Columbia. Do you know why we did that? Not because kids deserve toys, but because in bringing the community out to receive those toys, you know how many people were able to hear the gospel? That's why we as a church do a toy drive every year for that group down in Columbia to advance the kingdom. How we choose to invest our money speaks volumes about us. Look at verse 24, and then we're going to wrap this up. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Verse 24 begs the question, whom do you serve? This isn't a one-and-done question, right? This is not just for the holiday season, and it's not just a thing you ask yourself one time this season. We must ask this of our hearts and minds day by day, season by season, purchase by purchase. Because that which we store up, whether earthly or heavenly, reveals our master. So as you wrap up your shopping this Christmas, that was intentional. Take stock. Are your spending habits serving God or something else? have the band come up. Um, we're going to transition into a time of um, communion and reflection. What I would ask you to do um, before you come up and take the elements, I want you to do a, a, a self-inventory. Where do you find your heart? Where do you think you might cut back a little, spend differently in order to invest differently this season to undermine the cultural message of Christmas and reestablish Christ at the center of it? How can you give lavishly within your means?
Heavenly Father, I thank you for sending your Son. I thank you for your generosity, opening up the treasures, the treasury of heaven, sending your Son down to, to die on our behalf, to give us salvation, to bring us into the kingdom, to invite us into your family, to adopt us as sons. I pray that as we continue through this season, as we continue to look at how we're going to invest in our friends and family through, uh, through giving, I pray that you would open our hearts to see how we might better reflect the glory of your generosity in sending your Son in all that we do so that your kingdom might be advanced because, God, that is more important than anything else we could possibly want for anyone this season. How might we make your name more glorified among men? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.